0: Alright, so today's lecture is Earth as a System. As you go through the PowerPoint, you can follow along. The underlined and odd colored things are actually hyperlinks to other videos. I will also link those other videos in the Google Classroom. I really do suggest that you watch the videos. The videos are put in not to kill time in class, but they're put in to help you understand the concept that we're talking about. So, Earth as a system, the Earth as a whole. When we study environmental science, we are studying all parts of this Earth and how they interrelate. And we need to realize that we can't mess with one part of the Earth without affecting all of the other parts of the Earth. So, systems. Systems are defined as a set of components that function together as a whole. And each little part build up to make that whole thing. And again, because it's a bunch of components, You can't mess with one component without affecting the whole system that we're gonna talk about. When we talk about the solutions to environmental problems, climate change, um, ocean acidification, we have to look at all of the systems involved and their rates of change. When we look at this course, Environmental Studies, we'll look at the interconnected systems. So all components function together and affect each other. When we talk about systems, we talk about not only the biology, not only the ecology and the earth science, but then we also have to include the society because my solution that I'm going to use to solve an environmental problem is going to differ based on the society or the audience that I am presenting it to. It's going to function as a result of the laws and the laws that I'm gonna implement are going to function as a result of the society that I'm talking to. The solutions that are going to work in Fiji aren't necessarily the solutions that are going to work in Japan that aren't necessarily the same solutions that are going to work in China. So I have to make sure I take all of this into account. Economics plays a huge role in that. And as much as we'd like to say the environment overall, we realize that without taking economics into account, we can't have environmental solutions. We're not going to have environmental solutions that harm the overall economics and put people out to work people won't accept those solutions. When we talk about interconnected systems, we're gonna talk input and output of energy, input and output of matter. And we're gonna look at all of the non-living systems in relationship to the living systems. These systems can be stable, and in fact, we want them to be stable. We want long-term, no change in the majority of our systems. But the reality is, is that small things can cause quick changes. You are going to be asked throughout the course to draw environmental system diagrams. And this is just looking at the inputs and the outputs, what's coming into the system, what's going out of the system, what's moving between what we call our storages, where things reside for long periods of time, and as it moves, does it change? So when you draw a system diagram, a box is going to be a store. So an ocean stores the water. The atmosphere is a store of water. And then we're gonna have arrows that represent flows in or out of that system. So when we talk about a flow from the store of the atmosphere of water into the store that is the ocean, that arrow is going to be represented by precipitation or rain. Um, As it's going from the ocean to the atmosphere, that's evaporation, that would be another arrow. Obviously, the direction of the arrow shows whether something's coming in. So that precipitation, is an output of the atmosphere and an input into the um, oceans. The boundaries between are just lines. And then we have processes. A process can either transfer, which means it moves from one to the next in the same state, or a transformation where it changes state. So as water evaporates, that's a transformation because it goes from a liquid water into a gas form of water just like precipitation is going to be a transformation because it's going from atmospheric liquid gas into the liquid form that's in the ocean. Other examples are cellular respiration or photosynthesis as we talk about oxygen and carbon dioxide. Diffusion is going to be a transfer of materials so as we move things, if it's just moving and it's staying in the same form, it's a transfer. If it's changing, if what it looks like when it gets to where it's going is different than where, what it looked like when it first came out, that is a transformation. And this slide just basically talks about what I just talked about. Um, movement of material in non-living processes, water in a stream is a transfer, ocean currents is a transfer of energy. Um, We could have the transfer of energy by eating something, so if I had steak, that would be a transfer of of, um, energy. Transformation again, matter to matter, glucose or sugar transformed into a longer storage molecule of starch, energy to energy, light turning into heat, matter to energy, burning of the fossil fuel, so you take something like cow dung and you burn it and it gives off heat, that's a form of energy or matter or energy to matter which is photosynthesis or matter to energy which would be cellular respiration. Our um, systems can either be an open system or a closed system. In open system, matter and energy are constantly exchanging with other systems or with their surroundings. So the ocean is an open system of energy on the earth. So it's picking up energy from the wind It's turning into energy of the waves. Most of Earth's systems are open systems. A closed system is unusual. We don't see a lot of them, but no matter or energy can be exchanged. And so it's a bubble. And you won't have anything coming in. You don't have anything going out. We tried to do this in Biosphere 2 in the Arizona desert. Spoiler, very failed experiment, and I want you guys to watch this Biosphere 2 video that's linked on this slide, because it talks about why it didn't work as a closed system. You guys are gonna be asked to make your own little closed system, which is going to be the ecosystems in a jar, and at that point, it's mostly closed. Can anyone think of the one thing that's gonna transfer through that jar? Okay, it's going to be energy. So you're gonna have energy from the sun, that's going to go through that glass and hit your plant and turn into energy in the food web. So it's a mostly closed system, but not an entirely closed system. Your systems can be in two different states. They can be in equilibrium, and I think I mentioned that's the state we want things in. We want things to remain steady, consistent, reliable or they can be dynamic. Um, The Missouri River Basin in this slide is an example of a dynamic system state. Um, It changes, so when you have a really wet year, that river gets wider, and in dry years, that river gets narrow. So that's an example of a system that is kind of dynamic. From one year, one season to the next, it's gonna change. We have the tendency of our system states, when they're in equilibrium, to return to its original format, its original state. And we want it to do that, that's high resilience. If we could have a disturbance in the environment and it goes back to its steady state, goes back to what it originally was, that's awesome. That's high resilience, it means that you can have these little hiccups, a little bitty forest fire and it goes back to what it was, it's in steady state. So you have a continuous input and output of energy and matter. We call it a climax community. A climax community means I go out today to the forest and I write down everything I see, and I go back in 10 years and I write down everything I see, and I go back in 20 years and I write down everything I see, and my notebook will have all the same plants and animals. So it's a climax community. It's already hit what it's going to be, and it stays that way. This is often controlled by negative feedback, and we'll get to negative and positive feedback here in a minute. Static equilibrium, no change over time. Realize that most non-living things fall into static equilibrium. And then unstable equilibrium, that's kind of the state we're living in right now, where we have to find, and I'm sure you've heard this term a lot, the new normal. So we've had this massive disturbance, and we're going to come back not to what it was, but we're going to find a new normal that hopefully will become the set point. There is a video here um, on system feedbacks. I'd love you guys to watch it. Again, the videos help reinforce what I'm talking about. Realize that most natural systems are in steady state and can respond to inputs and outputs using feedback. And there are two types of feedback. The one that you are probably most familiar with, the one that is most common, is a negative feedback. So essentially, the system responds to change by returning it to its original state. So an increase in output leads to a decrease in output later. What does that all mean? Think about your air conditioner at your house. So mom sets the air conditioner at your house to 70 degrees and you've got a thermostat on the wall. And that thermostat all of a sudden reads 75 degrees. What's gonna happen? The air conditioner kicks on and the result of the air conditioner kicking on is that it lowers the temperature in the house to 70 degrees. When it hits 70, the air conditioner shuts off. So it's negative feedback. The action shuts off the action. Positive feedback is a little more rare. Positive feedback is where it amplifies the change. It's a snowball effect. If you've ever thought about rolling a snowball down a hill, the more you roll it, the bigger it gets. When we talk about positive feedback, the increase in output leads to a greater increase in output later. Population growth is a positive feedback. If I have two kids and they have two kids and their two kids have two kids, the population is just growing exponentially. Um, Another example of positive feedback is something called albino. Albino is where you have the reflection of light off of the surface. And so when we think about Antarctica, and it's all white, and so the heat of the sun is reflecting right off that surface, so the surface is never warming up, so therefore you can have more ice. Well, that ice is white, which then increases albedo, which then increases the effect, which allows for more ice. And it's a constantly building thing. Um, If you look at this picture up here, the climate warms and so we buy more air conditioning which releases more carbon dioxide which causes the climate to warm, which then causes us to buy more air conditioning which releases more carbon dioxide which causes the climate to warm. Is that positive or negative feedback? The answer is that is positive feedback. It's building, right? So our action of buying more air conditioning releases more carbon dioxide, which causes the plant to get warmer, which means more houses need air conditioning. So we're in positive feedback at that state. We want our systems to be resilient, and resilient means that they can take a disturbance and go back to that steady state. So if a system has a high resilience, when it's disturbed, it will go back to its previous state. If it's got a low resilience, then it has to find a new normal. All right. What do we talk about when we talk about resilience? If, I'm trying to find a good example here. My brain's not working. It's summer. Um, If I have a low resilience and horrible things keep happening, then I get sad. And then something else happens and I get sadder. And now my new state is just sadness. That's a low resilience. If I have a high resilience and something bad happens, then I can like be sad for a moment and then I shake it off and I'm my normal happy self again. So we want all of our systems, we want you guys to have high resilience. So what affects resilience? If you have a high diversity and a high complexity, you're going to have high resilience. So if in your forest, you've got a million different species of butterfly and one type of butterfly goes away, it's not a big deal. So you've got this high diversity, you've got complexity of your system, small changes, small disturbances aren't going to matter. Higher genetic diversity in a species increases resilience. This is when we talk about people who are naturally immune to something. And so even if a disease comes in, if we have enough people naturally immune to it, it won't matter. And that immunity is based on genetic diversity. The larger the ecosystem, the greater the resilience, which means the bigger the forest, if a small portion of the forest catches fire, it's okay because 90% of the forest is still fine and the animals can still live there. The smaller the ecosystem, the less resilience. If you have a high reproduction rate, you have high resilience. So if you have 20 babies and five die, it's okay. You still have 15 living babies. Your species is gonna go on. You have a high resilience at that point. There are often these things called tipping points in resiliency. Again, that orange is a video. You really need to watch the videos. All right. A tipping point is the point at which the equilibrium of the system can't return to its previous state. The disturbance has been so great. The toll of whatever is going on is so bad that there is no going back to what was now we do have to shift to that new normal. So we shift to a new state with significant changes to biodiversity and the services it can provide. If we deforest an area, that will never be a forest again. Now it's called desertification. And there's gonna be different things that we can do with that environment, but we're not gonna ever have the forest again. Um, A characteristic of a tipping point, it usually involves positive feedback. Global warming, we are reaching tipping points. There is a threshold after which change occurs quickly. Um, This point can't easily be predicted. We don't know what the threshold is going to be. We don't know what's going to push us over the tipping point. Um, If you've ever heard that statement, it was the straw on the camel's back where the camel can carry this huge load and then you add one little thing and the camel like collapses and dies because it was too heavy. That's when we talk about a tipping point. It was that one extra little thing added on to already the stress that was going on that pushes it into a point where it can't go back to the normal. There is often a lag time between cause and effect. We don't often do something and immediately see the result. Um, When we look at climate change, what we're seeing now is not because of the cars we're driving today, it's because of the cars that were driven in the 70s. When we talk about lung cancer, it's not because of the cigarette that was smoked today, it was a cigarette that was smoked 15 years ago. And so it's hard sometimes to put the pieces together to figure out what caused this um, tipping point. Some examples of tipping points, eutrophication, you're going to hear this term, forever throughout this course. It is a key kind of component of environmental systems and societies is eutrophication. Eutrophication is when there is an influx of nutrients into a lake. And so you have a lot of fertilizer and it rains and all that fertilizer ends up in the lake. Well, what's gonna happen then is the algae that are in the lake go, ooh, yum, something good. I like nutrients and they reproduce like crazy. And then they utilize all of the resources in that lake in a short period of time with this mass reproduction and the algae dies. And then when the algae dies, the bacteria grow, and as the bacteria start decomposing the algae, it uses all of the oxygen in the lake, and now you have no oxygen in the lake, so nothing can live in that lake and so all the fish die. It's not the algae growth that causes eutrophication, it's the decay of the algae after it utilizes all of the resources. Um, Another example of a tipping point is the elimination of a keystone species. A keystone species is something that is really important to the environment. If you look at the picture with the salmon, all of that stuff that's sitting on top of the salmon rely on the salmon for its survival. So if we get rid of the salmon, now the bears don't have a main food source. Um, We don't have the eagles with a food source. And so those things can't survive as well. It's a huge thing. Right now, we're starting to see the kelp forests um, in trouble again and the keystone species in a kelp forest is actually a sea otter, because the sea otter eats sea urchins, and the urchins eat the kelp forest. Well, without the otter to eat the urchins, the urchins mass produce, and they get rid of all of the kelp. Well, you get rid of the kelp. The kelp are a huge biome for all of these fish. And then when we look at another example of a tipping point would be coral reef death. So an increase in acidity and ocean temps and non-safe sunscreen will kill the coral. Coral takes thousands of years um, to develop, and once it's gone, it's gone. It doesn't regenerate, and so you have to come up to a new normal at that point. Um, I'm gonna skip over this one. I haven't seen this on any of the IBRAP or AP tests in years, but the slide is here. Um, wouldn't hurt to take a look at it, but I'm not gonna spend lecture time talking about it. Again, um, this is average residence time or art, And it's talking about how long does a molecule of oxygen live in the atmosphere or how long does a molecule of water live in the ocean. Um, You need to know what art is. It's the average residency time, but you don't necessarily need to know how to calculate it because again, I haven't seen one of these calculations in years on an exam. Um, You could look at models when we do analysis. So if you do your system diagram, now we need to look at these models. And the models are going to help us predict what's going to happen in the future. And we're going to use computer simulation, pictures, or physical models. Um, They're used to explain accumulated knowledge about an accepted hypothesis and to predict future change. An example of this is global warming. So we've got a ton of computer models on global warming and we can say, if we don't change our carbon dioxide output, this is what we predict is going to happen in the future. So models are really useful because sometimes you can't experiment on an entire system. We can't experiment on an entire forest, but I can make a model of that forest and do small scale experiments and use those as predictions to what would happen with the larger entity. The strengths of models is they're easier to work with. Um, You can predict change, you can see patterns, you can visualize really big, hard to understand things like climate change. The weakness of this is that the accuracy is lost if the model is too simple, and the model is only as good as the data that you're putting into it. And so if somewhere your data is flawed or your idea is flawed and you build your model around that flawed principle, then your model itself isn't going to be accurate. Earth is a bunch of interconnected systems, as I said in the beginning. So it's comprised of many smaller complex systems that operate at multiple space and time scales. Matter and energy are gonna flow through all of Earth's systems. And if you change one part of one system, it affects all of the other parts of the system. So if I increase my social system, my demand on products, it will negatively infect my biological systems. It might positively affect my economic systems, these things are all related. Um, As political systems change, we really do know that who's in office is going to affect all of these different things, because they're going to set policy based on their beliefs. And so when we talk a lot about environmental policy, environmental solutions, environmental change, we talk about our politicians and our politics. Last thing I want to talk about here is this Gaia. It's a model of Earth proposed in 1979 by James Lovelock. And it basically said that Earth as a whole is a living, breathing organism. Just like the cells make up your body and make up a whole of you, all of the different parts of Earth make up this living system called Gaia or Mother Earth. And when you view it that way, you can see how if you cut off your arm, that affects the rest of your body, right? So if you were to cut down a forest, it would affect the rest of the earth. Um, The biosphere keeps composition of the atmosphere in check through negative feedback, and the atmosphere regulates the earth as if it were an organ. Okay, and that's it. Um, We'll talk about what it means to be a hummingbird later.